Welcome to Black Teacher Matters. My name is Abdel Shakur, and I'm in my 13th year of practice as an English teacher in Evansville, Illinois. Being a writer and English teacher will make you look at your life like it's a story. I'm no churchgoer, but I can't help to place all of life's blessings and curses within the context of a larger narrative. Stories make life easier to understand, give structure, meaning, especially when shadows fall. That's handy in my profession because kids need that light more than they need to write a focused paragraph or use a semicolon properly or analyze a nonfiction text for the main idea. They need to know that the adult in class believes their lives have greater purpose. The time with them serves a higher calling, a higher calling they can answer as well. Now, as great as all that sounds, sometimes life ain't worried about your stories. It just is. 2020 reminds of this again and again and again. This podcast is about exploring the narratives I've developed for myself as a mixed black man who works to help young people educate themselves. It's about finding out what I've done, why I'm doing it, and how we can keep more black folks in this role. Because as quiet as it's kept, black people will continue to educate their children. We will pass down our history, our language, our values, our culture, our music, our spirit, no matter what may come next. But we also need people to stand up for our children, to make sure they are getting what they need in schools, to make sure they are not diminished or dimmed. Black teachers are the most motivated and qualified, while also being the last hired and first fired. And that's why it's essential that we tell our stories, that we hear where we've come from, so we can think about where we're going. Each episode, you'll hear a story from me, and then I'll introduce you to someone significant in my educational life a teacher that's helped me form in some kind of way. This episode, I'm talking to Alan Miller, a teacher who helped me discover myself as a writer at Berkeley High School. But first, I got a story to tell. I hope you enjoy. When I first started teaching, one of the first lessons my students taught me was that inferential clues were not going to be enough to get them to know I identified as black. I could shave my curly locks, greet students with an earnest, hey brother, hey sister, speak with my father's tongue, and some would still not get it. In the segregated schools where I taught in Baltimore and Chicago, many children didn't have a visual vocabulary to know a dude like, looked like me could be unequivocally black. They needed me to connect my dots, so to speak. So, on the first day of class every year, I tell my students that my name is Adele Shakur, that I'm not related to Tupac, that my mom, Diane, is white, and my dad, Gilgamesh, is black, that my full name means servant of Allah, the most thankful, that I'm a cis-hetero, mixed black man with a wife and three kids, and I'm also a writer. I've learned that it's critical my students see that a person like me can exist, and more importantly, that a person like me knows that it's my job to be aware of their existence, their innocence. I get sideways looks right about them. Some of them hoot and laugh. And I have to let them know that I'm not suggesting that they've never done anything wrong. I'm using a definition given to me by one of my mentors, the novelist Alex Pate, who defines innocence as basically having the right to choose, to not be tied to anyone's particular definition or preconception. My message to them is that their innocence is not tied to purity, but to their goodness. The thing inside them that was there when they were in the cradle, 
the spirit that wants to be loved, nourished, and protected. When they can be more fully aware of that innocence, then they can be more fully qualified to ask questions about the choices they've made, questions that can hopefully direct their course in a direction more reflective of who they really are. Now, as a teacher, I need to be in touch with my own innocence in order to perceive it. Again, not innocent like I've never done anything wrong, but like I'm invested in asking questions to develop my truest perception. After all, teaching offers the best opportunity to cultivate innocence in its practitioners. I gotta stand on something for my students to really see me. For some educators, this means degrees earned or years at the front of a class or possession of rules and procedures. But for me, it's really about presence. Who is the you that stands before us in this present moment? My students carry this question with them as they shuffle into the room on the first day. In my experience, a real learning only happens when I can demonstrate that I'm actively engaged in answering that question myself. Not because I'm lost without bearings, but because my questions give me a trajectory, a path to travel. When I'm familiar with my questions, my path is illuminated and I become innocent of what the world has to say about who I am and what I will become. If I'm doing my job, students aren't following my path, but are using its light to find their own. Being a mixed black boy meant I often found myself in other people's blind spots. Not standout athletic, not debarge pretty, no money to speak of, not good with the girls, nor throwing up the hands. I had a smart mouth, but few friends and family around to back me in a fight. I strained to be powerfully visible like my father, Gilgamesh, with his dark skin, shiny bald head, and voice full of bass. His visibility had its cost, a toll he paid wherever he went, but it seemed worth the path to black manhood. I couldn't see how my light skin, curly hair, and big nose would ever allow me to follow him. But back in 1991, sitting on the floor at Walden Books in downtown Berkeley, California, I learned the value of my own power, invisibility. I flexed it when I slipped an issue of the uncanny X-Men into the sleeve of my coat. I felt how an incredible Hulk double issue fit snugly in the space between my shoulder blades and backpack. I smiled to myself when the Silver Surfer folded inconspicuously within the recesses of a free weekly East Bay Express. Theft requires absolute faith in one's ability to appear innocent or invisible. My friend Doug could go into the Gap on Telegraph Avenue, roll a pair of khaki pants under his shirt, and walk straight out like another child of God. Doug's trick was that he knew people already thought he was guilty. So he leaned into it, so far that he appeared innocent. He didn't flinch when the alarm sounded. He just walked on through. Three steps, then gone in a puff of smoke. I didn't know how to lean like that, but I did know how to be still. So still that I became colorless, transparent, background noise to store employees. As boys, we learned that blackness was connected to how visible you were to white folks. The more aware and afraid white people were of your black body, the more real you were. Anything less was soft or fake or weak. Something that might get you called a white boy or laughed at by girls or jumped after school. In Walden Books, however, this invisibility was radical, a blow against something I couldn't fully articulate or understand. So I became a thief. A book thief, if you will, but with revolutionary aspirations. 
I visited it at least once a week, starting with comics, moving on to magazines, and finally larger books. I remember during the first war on Iraq, crouching in the tall aisles, snatching books off the shelves to find all I could about this country that seemed to be suffering an unspeakable evil. On long trips, my dad often played Malcolm X's message to the grassroots, so I swiped a book of his speeches. It occurred to me that someday, maybe, I could be a writer. So it made sense to loot the shelves for anything related to the topic. I stole, and stole, and stole. At first it was an awakening, then it became political, then simply a duty. If I missed my weekly Walden Books detour, I felt like I was stealing from myself. My faith in my invisibility lasted well into my sophomore year, but as I grew up, the aisles felt more and more cramped. The eyes of the people behind the counters looked up more often from behind the counter when I passed. Now there were younger kids starting to array themselves conspicuously throughout the store. Word has spread. One last score, I told myself each time I visited. And one day, I realized that the black man in the white press shirt with a neat afro, browsing the calendars near the door, had looked away just after I tucked a Punisher double-issue comic in the sleeve of my jacket. I knew I was caught. But I figured he wouldn't get me until I tried to leave the store. So, I picked up an issue of U.S. News and World Report in my clammy, shaky hand and read. And read. And read. When I looked up and saw he had moved from the entrance, I walked quickly to the door. And as soon as I turned the corner, I sprinted. My backpack thundering against my shoulders. Narrowly. I escaped. The reality in 1994 was that Berkeley High School's 4,000 students were divided into two schools, one white and one for everybody else. Mixing happened socially, especially when it had to do with sports or weed smoking. But otherwise, the academic tracks were distinct. On the first day of school my junior year, I walked into Ms. Agawa's junior English class with an uneasy feeling. There was a small classroom with chair desks arranged in two rows on either side of the room, and was the rare class at Berkeley High that was not overcrowded. Ms. Agawa was a short Asian woman with a thicket of brown hair that lay flat on top and covered her ears. She gave me a warm elfin smile and nodded her head in welcome. With a sweep of her arm, she told me to sit wherever I wanted. Ms. Agawa listened patiently in those first few weeks, smiling at the front chalkboard, indulging us when we went off subject, laughing along with us when the class derailed. She had a motherly bearing that centered her authority and she didn't need to menace us with detentions or calls home. She avoided eye contact and would look anywhere but directly at you when she answered a question. She wasn't so uptight that she couldn't take the time to talk. let us talk. Listening is one of the unheralded and underutilized skills educators employ in classrooms. As much as we complain kids don't listen, it's rare when a teacher takes the time to really demonstrate the skill. Now, I love to read, but not for her class. The only books I remember from that semester were The Great Gatsby, A Separate Piece, and Death of a Salesman. All of them were concerned with the interior lives of young white men who seemed cartoonish to me. 
Ms. Agawa was not mean, but the work she assigned us seemed basic, without much expectation for us to go beyond simple recall. Maybe she didn't think we could go further. The thought that I had been placed in a slow class nagged at me. Behind my seat was a window that looked out at a large courtyard between the sea building and auditorium with its Roman pillars and chiseled Greek god edifice. There was a cross current of mostly white students on their way to upper level classes and black and brown students on their way to lower level classes. People formed friendships beyond those literal class lines, but most of my white friendships were set in elementary school. In that courtyard, I saw a black boy named Sega brutally stomp freshman year. Standing in a breathless crowd surrounding him and his attackers, I watched as one of the boys leapt in the air and landed a Timberland boot on Seagun's temple. The specter of this type of violence plays in the back of my mind continuously. In his quest to show how hard he was, Seagun had made the mistake of becoming too visible. Now as the semester went on, Ms. Agawa seemed sadder, more stressed. I know some of that sadness now, the way the constant performance, the constant attention, the constant pressure can wear on you. I had heard that there was a time when she was an excellent teacher, but I got the sense that somewhere along the way, teaching had become a burden. Our class became more unruly. I was going through my own stuff that year, trying to weave for the first time, writing for the school newspaper and feeling like I was being stifled, having little to no success with girls. That was also the first year that school seemed optional. In a school of 4,000, the hallways before the bell were prime people watching time. One of those days, I saw Doug in the hallway, and he had a proposal. Come on, blood, he said. He always carried a wooden brush, working the dark bristles across his scalp to get his hair to wave up. Let's go kick it in my house. I went back to see what the class was going to be like that day. Miss Agawa probably had a whole lesson plan centered around the reading we'd been assigned, maybe an activity, maybe group work, maybe a worksheet, maybe a class discussion. None of these possibilities were appealing. I went to my seat and saw a half-sheet quiz on my desk, the kind of quiz you give to reward the people who read and punish those who didn't. I fell into the latter group. I snatched the paper off the desk and jammed it in my pocket. Abdel, she protested. What are you doing? I couldn't help but smile. I felt so clever and bold. I slung my backpack on my shoulder and sauntered out the door like Big Boy from Outcast. Ms. Agawa yelled my name while Doug and I strolled down the hallway. I wonder what that moment in class was like when she came back in. I think about my classes now and how the presence or absence of a single student can swing the energy. Ms. Agawa didn't really want me to leave. I was telling her that I didn't think her class was worth my time. That must have stunk. I wondered, did that ruin her day? When I came back to class the next day, she met me at the door and handed me a thin yellow paper, a carbon copy disciplinary referral. What's this for? I said. Dread bloomed in my chest. You can go down and talk to the dean about it, she said, directing me out with her hand. It's like that? I said. My voice came out weaker and more pleading than I intended. I shrugged, gave a defeated smile like I had been betrayed. Miss Agawa kept her eyes steady on the floor. I walked down the hallway and unfolded the form. There was a written description of the incident from the previous day. It occurred to me that she'd probably taken her time to write it. 
In loopy cursive script, she summarized what I'd done. The pocketed quiz, the insubordination, and then finally, displays a cavalier attitude towards his education. Now I was expecting disrespectful, rude, perhaps dishonest, but instead she chose cavalier. There was something about that phrasing that drew a rueful laugh from me then and something that makes me smile even now. I saw Doug in the hall and showed him the form, hoping he could see how petty my teacher was. He studied the paper, gave his waves two quick strokes. You dumb blood, he said and handed it back to me. Look like you better get your ass down to on-campus suspension with the rest of the baby kids. So the joke was that although I was a smart ass, I had always known the line, how to not make myself so visible that there were documented consequences to my misbehavior, how to pass. Doug was placed in a lower English class than mine and demonstrated his intellect by getting into public spats with teachers, showing them up as fools or hypocrites. When PBS came to Berkeley High the year before to film a documentary about school segregation, I avoided the cameras like the plague, but he was all over it, letting older folks know how a racist school system was putting him at a disadvantage. I'd been in class with him a year before and had witnessed him relentlessly, relentlessly, performing brain surgery on the hapless white teacher. I participated, but again, I was also passive. My mom was white, and I had at least partial entry into a world the school was set up to keep Doug out of. And here I was, headed to on-campus suspension. To perceive innocence is to be able to look at a child in your class and know in your heart that the heart of that child is straining for connection. Straining for love, straining for understanding, just like yours. It's about being aware that every child is the latest in a line of people with their own history, their own relationships with power. All of these things have tuned the pitch of their innocence. It's also important to be aware of how the pitch of your innocence has been tuned. Harmonic vibration is only possible with this awareness. Yet, this awareness runs counter to what we've been taught about innocence. We've been taught to think of it as a finite resource that only really exists in the very young, a resource that is slowly leached away by a steadily encroaching real world. The depletion of this resource marks the end of childhood and the quality of a young life is judged by the duration of this childhood, how long one was able to, quote, hold on unquote, to this non-renewable resource. We are happy to see our children grow and mature, but mourn the loss of the state of being, that innocence we hold most pure and most essential to goodness. But as we claim to hold the innocence of our children in high esteem, we also resent them for having it. They don't know how good they have it, we cluck. In my day, we chide. Be content and don't question. Don't try to grow up too fast. We watch them closely for any signs of corruption, all while they are surrounded by a culture that encourages them to leverage their innocence for materialistic advantage. We do unspeakable cruelty in the world to preserve their innocence. 
We do unspeakable cruelty to children to preserve our idea of their innocence. But what if the thing we call innocence is something that can't actually be lost? What if innocence is not something that can be stolen or created or destroyed? What if the thing we call innocence exists outside of our holy books or words or graven images? What if innocence is a property like light, a property that exists whether we are able to perceive it or not? What if the experience of losing innocence was merely the experience of losing our perception of innocence, like losing our sight? What if we could all still experience innocence despite feeling like we've been corrupted? What if the reason why our children see most innocence is because their behavior, their innocence, is not filtered through years of experience? These are important questions because so many of our values are filtered through the ideas of innocence and guilt. Who deserves to eat? Who deserves shelter? Who deserves access to fresh water? Who deserves to be educated? Who deserves justice? Who deserves love? All of these questions are answered by assessments of innocence and guilt. The mania of white supremacy is so pernicious because it racializes innocence. We are taught that lighter skin marks a more innocent soul. No matter the crimes white people commit, we are to understand that there is something good and pure inside them, something worth preserving, something that matters. White innocence is so toxic because it's based on a willful ignorance of the self, a detachment from reality. This mania requires one to be ignorant of the crimes of whiteness. It requires the guilt of those crimes to be externalized to black bodies. Black bodies don't have the choice to look away. Too often these black bodies are the bodies of children. I was relieved when I reported to on-campus suspension and saw that Malik Ahmadi was in charge. Mr. Ahmadi was in my dad's circle at San Francisco State University. He was a part of a contingent of at least eight to 10 young black male teachers hired at Berkeley High during my ninth grade year. They were everywhere and brought powerful revolutionary energy like only young educated brothers can. It was a relief to have them around at a time when I was still trying to figure out who I was, but it was also intimidating to encounter such powerful men who seemed to be so centered in their own blackness. They came in to disrupt things in the name of black power, but I wasn't sure where my mixed blackness fit into all of that. Mr. Ahmadi always seemed like a stand-up dude about business with his fitted shirts and sharp suits. His family was from West Africa, I believe, and he often smiled but didn't play. Whereas some of the other teachers had a kind of Afrocentric community theater vibe going on, Mr. Ahmadi's blackness seemed less performative. Doug, who frequented OCS, spoke highly of him and that he was willing to talk on an intellectual level with the folks that ended up in OCS. Mr. Ahmadi was officious and let me and the five other black boys know the ground rules. No gum, no talking, do your work, and there would be no problems. He stepped out into the adjoining classroom, and while he was gone, me and another kid went to the front of the room to look at his computer. The internet wasn't a thing at the time, so I imagine we were looking for video games. During my stint at the school newspaper, I saw how the white boys loved playing war games in between stories. So I looked. And before I knew it, Mr. Ahmadi was standing right next to us. The other boy scrambled to his seat, and Mr. Ahmadi asked what I was doing. 
I can't remember what I said, but likely it displayed a cavalier attitude. What I do remember is the force of the punch he delivered to my chest. All the air left my body. I looked around and everyone's eyes were wide like, damn, you got socked. I sat down and tried to catch my breath. The punch stung, but it hurt more that he had punctured my sense of self. It occurred to me later that Mr. Amati wouldn't have done that to a white kid because not only was it rare for white kids to get sent to OCS, it would have immediately cost him his job. And when I told Doug about it, he said that Mr. Amati never got physical with the black kids down there. I wish that nigga would, was the consensus of my friends. Shame kept me from telling my parents or making a stink about it. I was ashamed that I got hit, but even more so by the thought that Mr. Amati had seen me as being too white to be a real brother. Because I was a mixed black boy in that disciplinary space, he felt he had license to put his hands on me. He saw me the next week and apologized, but I couldn't release the anger. It wasn't any better when I returned to Ms. Agawa's class. I had no idea she was struggling with depression and she had no idea I'd been assaulted because of her referral. I may have missed class, but I found a story that captured all the ways I thought I had been failed by the system. A young, black, not yet open about being mixed. Young man, passionate about learning, tracked into a lower level English class taught by an uninspired teacher who couldn't recognize or develop his talent. Perfect story. Now for many years as a teacher myself, I told students the story of Ms. Agawa during the first days of school. I reasoned that it showed that I was on their side, that I wanted the class to be stimulating, useful, and connected to their lives, that I wanted them to learn and feel seen, and sure, I wanted them to see me as some kind of revolutionary, someone who didn't follow rules or fit into the framework of school, maybe even like one of those young black teachers that came to my school all those years ago. Over time, though, I've come to see that what I and my students need is not neat stories to justify who we are, but new questions to apply to the stories that have given us form, questions that put us closer to understanding our innate innocence, that bundle of yowling needs that drives our souls to act. This past summer, I heard Mr. Gawa had died almost 10 years ago. I found an obituary written by one of her children posted online. She was born after World War II and was adopted by a military family. I wonder what it was like to grow up in nearly all white schools in Nevada and Los Angeles at a time when Japanese was synonymous with enemy. I wonder if her first name, Christine, was given to her by her white adoptive parents. I wonder what happened to her family in Japan. What was their name for her? I wonder how many classrooms she had felt invisible in. Were those the same classrooms where she read Fitzgerald and Miller and found a piece of herself? I had heard rumors that her marriage was falling apart and she had been caught stealing in some of the clothing stores downtown. I wonder if her invisibility felt anything like mine. Did it feel like a superpower or a defect? I wonder about Christine Agawa and I mourn the opportunity we missed to see one another. junior year, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to go to college and go elsewhere, but I wasn't sure where or how. My folks weren't rich and my grades were ashy. 
If there's one decision that had the most dramatic impact on what happened next, it was signing up for Alan Miller's AP Patterns in Black Literature class. Now, he was a tall, light-skinned black man who spoke with an official register, flavored with a bit of Southside Chicago mild sauce. He was the first black male English teacher I'd ever had, was openly gay, was openly a writer, and expected his students to do great things. People called him an Oreo behind his back, but if anyone tried to test him, he cut them down right where they cut up. He was also a serious writer. One day he read us a poem he'd written. I'm not sure what it was about, but I remember the image of a flower being stomped by a boot. It left me stunned to think that a teacher could write something so beautiful and vulnerable, and that a teacher would want to share it with us. His class mattered more to me than any other on my schedule. Patterns of Black Literature was a revelation in my senior year. We read Invisible Man in the summer, talked about the beef between Zora Neale Hurston and Richard Wright, Jane Baldwin's role in the Civil Rights Movement, Alice Walker, June Jordan, Charles Johnson, Gwendolyn Brooks, and so many others. I still remember feeling blown away when he showed us Marlon Riggs' documentary, Black Is Black Ain. It was in that class that I found a piece of myself again. He not only helped me improve my writing and thinking, he gave me a key to a legacy I had not found in school. In my 13th year, it's encouraging to know that this brother is still at it, still doing the work. And that's why I had to talk to Mr. Miller. I started off our conversation with an excerpt from a book he gave me a couple years back, Meredith Marin's Class Dismissed, which documents the struggle for racial equity at Berkeley High School and prominently features Mr. Miller. Can I just read one thing? Because I did do my homework. You, you assigned me this book, class. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. For people who have never like been in Mr. Miller's class, I think there's just an excerpt in here that's like, that just typifies a lot of it, of who, who you are as a teacher. Um, this is you talking to your AP class, which I took AP, I think, senior year. Right. And so he's just, you know, first day of class. He says... This is the first year of your lives you can no longer say it's your parents' fault. If you're late to your job, your boss won't ask if your mom dropped you off late. Seek out the help you need at home, in the community, to make sure you graduate and get into your top choice. Copy. And then some students are kind of talking. Um, and, then, and, then, and then Mr. Miller's He's starting his lesson. He gives us uh, some poems, or he gives these students some poems. This, by this, is actually from a book called *Class Dismissed*, which was, um, which is a, is a year in the life of an American high school at Berkeley High School, and so it kind of follows Mr. Miller and a bunch of students and some other teachers as they kind of progress through the school year, and so that's that's where it, I'm reading from. It's getting picture, picture. Uh, Mr. Miller says, this is a poem about the jazz age. Anyone have an opinion of Louis Armstrong? <laughs> Hesitantly, a couple of kids raised their hands. My mom loves his music, one boy says. I started to appreciate it too. And by the way, I'm, I'm assuming these are, this is a mostly white class, generally. Yes. That, that's kind of a flavor. <laughs> Mr. Miller says, he may have been a good musician, but he was a real Tom. <laughs> Ms. Miller responds flatly, a lot of black people hate it, like me. 
the other kid puts his hands down. Big automobile under his breath. He's hecka hard. Uh, take a minute to read the poem, Mr. Miller instructs the class. Then we'll discuss it further. The room falls silent. The students' brows wrinkle with concentration as they bend to the task at hand. That's Mr. Miller letting everybody know that we're going to talk seriously about literature in this class. And I'm expecting you to go beyond your first impression. Um, and I'm going to be real. That, that's, uh, that's what I think of when I think of Mr. Miller. Me and Mr. Miller had a lot to talk about, but I really wanted to talk to him about where he came from. One of the things that always impressed me about his teaching was that he let his Southside Chicago attitude inflect everything that he did. And he talked to me a little bit more about the place he was from, this segregated community that was so vibrant and rich for him. It was a really unique community, not class stratified, but it was an all-black community. And, and we had journalists, doctors, teachers, bus drivers, prostitutes, unemployed folks, shop owners, all in the neighborhood. You know, there were all different types of working class folks and all different types of folks with all kinds of elite degrees and jobs and responsibilities and credentials all crammed together. And it was a really remarkable place to be. And my elementary school was part of that community. I went to Francis Willard Elementary and it was a phenomenal school. We led my grade a couple of years, led the city of Chicago in reading. But six years after we led the city of Chicago in reading, the school was closed down. Wow. Yeah. You know, from being this, doing all these great things to nothing being there. It, it was really an amazing place. Several teachers had PhDs. Several of my teachers had connections to all kinds of resources that I know weren't going into all the schools that were there on the South Side. Although I'm sure there were lots of fine schools all over the South Side. One of my teachers, uh, her name was Fernetta Jarrett. Her husband was Vernon Jarrett. He had a TV show for a while. He had a radio show. He worked at the Chicago Tribune. You know, eventually I could open up the newspaper and say, there's Mr. Jarrett, uh, which, which is a very powerful thing. Dr. Margaret Burroughs, I don't know if you've heard of her. She's the founder of the DuSable Museum. And she did a book called, Did You Feed My Cow? where she collects all of these stories and jump rope songs and things like that. Well, she came to our class and she taught us and sang with us these songs. And she would have us get up out of our seats and, you know, make gestures and so forth. And so I had, I had really a phenomenal resources. You know, and I also grew up in this community where any adult could spank you. (laughs) 
and you felt like you were being watched. You know, as I would walk through the streets, I was concerned about what would my mother think? What would my father think if I did this or I did that or I did this? And one day I remember I was coming home from school and I had done something and I don't remember even exactly what it was, but it wasn't anything very serious. But I remember this older woman was on her porch and she leaned down and she said to me, I know what you did. And if my rheumatiz wasn't bothering me, I'd come down there and kick your butt. And I was like, this is before cell phones. And you know, so that was a magical thing. You know, so that community was one where everybody was looking out for everybody. And where all the adults were in league, they were all part of this village raising the children. I didn't know the names of all the people whose you know, apartments I passed on the way to school, but I did feel like if I was hurt or if something happened, I felt like I could go to them. I remembered the deep and abiding respect Mr. Miller had for the poet June Jordan. He brought her work to class, and even helped bring her to Berkeley High School for a workshop. Jordan said, Poetry is a political act because it involves telling the truth. To tell the truth is to become beautiful, to begin to love yourself, value yourself, and that's political in its most profound way. Um, and I guess I just wonder, like, how's that, how do you see that, like, relating to the way that you teach? Because she's talking about poetry, but... Well, I don't think that she's only talking about poetry. Mm -hmm. I, I think that poetry itself becomes a metaphor. She's just talking about truth-telling. I try to be a truth-teller. And I try to make room to allow... I'm a strong voice. I try to allow room for other folks to tell their truth. And I, and I want in my teaching for people to hear different voices. In African-American studies right now, I'm teaching... Booker T. Washington, Marcus Garvey, and W.E.B. Du Bois. It would be very easy to caricature Booker T. Washington. Right. And I'm not really interested in doing that, although I'm well aware of his limitations. Mm -hmm. It's also easy to caricature Garvey and Du Bois. Mm -hmm. Everybody needs to hear all of those voices. And they need to know things like women were involved in the founding of the NAACP, but never uh, are never seen in any official pictures. <laughs> you know, they need to know that there's some voices out there and they need to know the strengths of the different voices. They need to see the world as a complex place. And you have to hope that school is gonna give them some of that. Because parents bring their own stuff. Certainly my dad brought his own stuff. You know, and also the fact that he was so much older than we were, you know, that was difficult. And not all bad, but it was it was difficult. You know, and it, 
and we didn't get to hear all the voices that we needed to hear. But, you know, I had a, a from his first marriage, I had a great sister who gave me books and suggested books to read and who wrote books and wrote articles and traveled the world and lived uh, in Africa in different places. You know, so we need to hear all these voices, even if they're not voices that we have a natural affinity for. Mm -hmm. When you do that, students have the freedom to insert their own voice. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, you're selling the party line. And God knows I have my biases in my party line. But I want there to be space for people to create their own uh, narrative. So that card I got from them was, it was really a powerful thing to get because um, we don't always know, teachers don't always know how people end up and where they go and how you've influenced them. But, But it's also, I think, a really important thing to have a place where you look at things in their own context. And I think that that's both good teaching and I think it is also soul nourishing because you're not just looking at yourself through the eyes of other people. You know, people have written about that white gaze, but you know, let people see a literature on its own terms is a very powerful thing. Talking to Mr. Miller reminded me that good teaching nourishes the soul because it helps the self find its image in the world. A black teacher like Mr. Miller is vital because he hands out maps for students to see the way our streams of humanity are connected and intertwined. Vulnerable and beautiful, innocent and human. Right on, right on, right on, right on. Thanks for listening.